Welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. Today we're going to be talking about Russian Doll, the great Netflix series created by Natasha Lyonne, Leslie Headland, and Amy Poehler that stars Lyonne as Nadia Volvakov, a raspy-voiced video game creator who finds herself dying over and over again. I'm Slate's TV critic Willa Paskin, and I'm joined today by Slate's film critic Dana Stevens. Hi, Dana. Hey. And writer and culture critic Rachel Syme. Hi, Rachel. Hello. Um, it has been like a extremely long time since I watched a TV show that I was like, I would like to start over and watch this again. Or like, I would actually like to recap the show. It's been, I mean, it's been, maybe it's never happened. I don't know. Uh, but I wanted to do all of those things with Russian Doll. So I'm very excited to be talking yeah. with you guys about it in detail. Um, there's a lot, I think, to talk about, like a lot of big ideas, a lot of small ideas. And we're going to try to get to a lot of them. Okay. I'm sure we won't get to all of them. But um, because this is a spoiler special, I want to just start by like doing a very precise synopsis of the plot. <laughs> I'll start, <laughs> but you guys will have to actually did rewatch it. Yeah. You, you are right that it is the kind of show and we can get into why this is. I think it's because it's so recursive and circular that you kind of want to go back to the beginning and become a, a Nadia yourself and repeat the whole experience. And I did rewatch it. So I should be able to do this, <laughs> but I'm not sure I'm great at plot explication. So jump in if you need to help me. So as, you, as you've said, Nadia is a 36 year old video game developer in New York. She turns 36 on the day the show begins, which is... I just want to interrupt and say, her being 36 and a video game developer are like the least true things about the show. Right, <laughs> we right. Get, like, I, we see I her do, program once. I don't believe she's a video game developer, and I don't believe she's 36. But we can get... But everything else about the show is wonderful. Yeah. That's like basic premise. I'm always like, eh, okay, sorry. <laughs> but all that really high concept stuff you're completely oh, down with. Yeah. So, so, yes, the show begins on her 36th birthday at her 36th birthday party that's being thrown for her by her friend Maxine, played by Greta Lee, who becomes... I mean, really, I would say... We'll get there, but, I mean, Greta Lee's character becomes one of the other key functions in the show. Maybe not a character, but a character function. She, she serves a very important one. And this is the day, her 36th birthday, that she will end up living over and over again. Actually, that's not quite true. This this isn't a scenario in which she lives always the same day over and over again. It's that she is reincarnated on her birthday each time and then has to try to make it as far as she can into her life. Sometimes she makes it more than one day. Sometimes she doesn't. But she finds herself trapped in this time loop where she falls down the stairs and dies many, many times in a row. Her first death is that she's hit by a car and dies. What are some of the other deaths in the she, early part? Gas she, explosion. She falls into like the cellar doors of streets. She, she chokes on takeout chicken. She gets stung by bees. And falls into <laughs> the East River. An elevator plummets there. I mean, it's, it's it starts to be like the world is kind of has it out for her. Yeah. So yeah. like death is very close. So she has this one death and then she just keeps dying and keeps dying and yes. keeps dying and she she every time it's at this birthday bash thrown for her in this crazy on inexplicably on a sunday evening <laughs> oh right <laughs> who has a birthday party on a sunday uh in this giant loft that her friend Maxine owns which is a refurbished yeshiva in the east village which Seems pretty true to me, actually. I, I actually it was kind think, of friends apartment. I actually think then... it's this building that's on the corner of Norfolk and Suffolk and Rivington Street. We're going to yeah. get into the details of that in a second. Yeah. But so she she starts to die. And at the very end of the third episode, she, you know, she she basically, I mean, we'll get into what this is exactly like 
Groundhog's Day versus a video game and mm-hmm. various things. But one of the things is that it is like a video game in the sense that it's like you die and then she can kind of explore different paths. She it respawns. Does, right. Like video game lingo would say she's respawning. Right. She like and she learns things. So she yeah. it sort of like has to choose your own adventure. Like she goes back to learn things. Anyway, at the end of the third episode, she is um, in an elevator on the way to the doctor and it plummets. It starts to plummet to the earth. And there's another person in the elevator who's also remaining very calm. And she's like, why are you so calm? And he's like, well, it's okay. I die all the time. And so we basically learn. Yes, we meet Alan. Tell us about Alan. Uh, Alan, uh, played by Charlie Barnett, is a, uh, I would say, fastidious. Some might say OCD or anal retentive. We don't really know what his job is. I'm assuming he's some kind of finance guy. uh, But very buttoned up, bonobos, J. Crew type guy who also lives in the East Village, which, again, doesn't seem totally realistic to me. But Totally does with the new East Village? Well, sort of, maybe, yeah, in one of those like, <laughs> weird high rises. Who can afford to live yeah. in the East Village? Well, the, we should get later to the New York <laughs> yeah. movie takes yeah. place. Anyways, yeah. Alan Zaveri is a... Um, pretty sad dude he has a longtime girlfriend Beatrice played by the great Dasha Polanco who he's about to propose to the very same night when they're respawning we found we find out later um that they are their deaths are intricately connected in so much as uh, Nadia and Alan always have to die at the same time and somehow they're trapped in this time loop together um that unfolds over the next couple episodes but what we learn about Alan in the very next episode after we find out he also dies all the time is that the night that he dies um is the night he was going to propose to his girlfriend goes over tries to do it she dumps him and he finds out that she's been sleeping with another man her english professor um and Who, coincidentally natasha leon has slept with in the very first timeline yes it's very... a tangled web because apparently a party the, guest. the right. east village is a very small town <laughs> um where everyone knows everyone and sleeps with everyone else but uh yes yeah, so alan has this terrible evening and i guess because this is a spoiler special we can later reveal a few episodes later he remembers his first death which is that he kills himself that night by jumping off the top of his building so alan's not doing so great and the two and so basically although this is natasha leon's show and it's been referred to that way it basically becomes a complete two-hander it's a A buddy comedy yeah or or like a uh it's like almost like a psycho- psychological buddy comedy or like an emo- you know and a detective story as well right, right? Because, because at her behest they go on this this quest to find out why they keep dying it's actually her idea Nadia's idea that Alan figure out what happened in his first death she's the one who sees oh if we can figure that out maybe that will be the key and it's something that we have to assume he's blocked out because it was too painful to remember and so over the course of their sort of investigation and yeah. why they're connected and why they keep dying and they sort of have collectively sort of emotional breakthroughs that at the end of the show I mean it seems like they've really had emotional breakthroughs that they've helped each other uh you know learn something and they actually break out of their time loop although in two separate timelines which yes which we can get, get into we're in gonna end. get but into the sort one of thing specifics. I'll say by way of a spoiler that I really love about the show among many other things that I really love is that Alan and Nadia never have any real romantic tension there's never it's, even though it's they not sleep a together yeah they <laughs> sleep together but other than it's, it's really like a let's give it a shot uh, it's not you know there's I, I actually like that there is not that tension yeah it's over very, the whole thing they're not yeah. suited for one another and you know way. it's funny I the second time I watched this I was watching it with my man and he loved it too but he thought as it was going along he was coming up with theories in between each episode and he thought they were like destined to be together and it was going to be a romantic story and it was so strange (laughs) to me because that never occurred to me the first time watching it it. it's clear from when she sleeps with Mike the first the sleazy professor she sleeps with in the first episode that she's not interested in pursuing a long-term relationship with anyone well this is her I mean this is part of her issue we're going to get into this but her 
Nadia's set of issues are at the beginning more obscure in a certain way than Alan's. Like we know that she has um, this sort of very traumatic history with her mother and a sort of um, an adopt, you know, a, a surrogate mother figure. Um, but she's, I mean, and this is the whole thing about the show. It sort of wears its trauma and heaviness very lightly, which is it takes a lot. Like she's so brash and funny and like just pushing everything off. So you're like, oh, you seem like you're doing okay, Mm -hmm. but she's not really. And part of the reason she's not really is because she actually will not form connections with people. And and this time loop makes her and Alan like stuck and she has to really like. So she helps him because she helps him like not like get more flexible and less rigid and change. Which we'll get, but he sort of helps her because he, she has to stick with him. I have a question for both of you about when you started to figure out this show's game because something I love about it so much is that it never hammers these themes home. You know, it's not a learning and growing kind of show. And it took me probably into, I'm not sure if this was in the second or third episode, it took me a, a ways in until I started to realize, oh, this is how the universe works, or th- start to get some hint of how the universe works, and that it was a, sort of a, a moral question, right? That it was a, a moral and spiritual um, problem and dilemma that had to be solved, and not just one of, you know, figuring out the time travel loop or jumping through the wormhole or something like that. And I'm wondering, when did it occur to you, oh, it's that they need to make connections with people, that she needs to reach out and make connections? Uh, I think this is like the deepest stuff about the show. So I, firstly, I did not, I thought it was fine, but I actually did not love the show at all through the first two episodes. I found mm-hmm. the Groundhog's Day, Edge of Tomorrow, which is the Tom Cruise movie in which he, sort of actually more similar than Groundhog's Day, he also dies and can live for a certain amount of time, but keeps dying. Like sort of more of the video yeah. game ethos. I, I was just like, that is, I really am familiar with that trope and like I don't see what you're doing that's new with it. And it actually really, it's only started to be like when she's sort of investigating what the yeshiva is and it's like kind of funny and weird. And then when she meets Alan that I was like, oh, there is like this is going to be about something like emotional and more nuanced and more complicated. And there is like a whole structure for this world. And it's about character that I yeah. really like bought into it. But I think it was earlier than that for me. I want to hear when Rachel's moment was. I think it was when she um, went to help Horse, when she left the party to help the homeless guy and guard his shoes. Wasn't that before she meets Alan? Isn't that in the very first episode? Oh, you no. mean the, oh, the episode where she goes and gets... I think, I think that's episode that might, two. I think that's episode three, like where she where three. she hangs out with him and he... That may be the same episode where at the very end she and Alan end yeah. up in the elevator together. Yeah. yeah. Although I felt that was very Groundhog Day, too, because in Groundhog Day, Bill Murray helps that old man from dying and gives him soup every time. So it felt very that. Yeah. Um, I was still wondering what the game was. Actually, the moment when I sort of started to realize it might be about something deeper, and this is a weird moment, is, um, you know, you, you mentioned her surrogate mother, Ruthie, uh, mm-hmm. who has an amazing brownstone somewhere in East Village and is a therapist. Um, there is this very uh, subtle moment, I think it's in episode two or three, when you see the kind of therapy that Ruthie does. She does this therapy called EMDR, which is where people follow a tracking light as they recount their trauma. And it's a pretty obscure therapy method. This is just a side note to say that my mother does this. <laughs> it's a pretty obscure therapy method, but Willis' mother does it. Um, <laughs> you mean participates in it or gives it to other people? She's a therapist and ah. she was trained in this. I mean, she doesn't do it often, but like... She yeah, it's it. supposed to... It's actually like kind of from this sort of body keeps the score idea that trauma is lodged somewhere in the body and you have to bring it out from your subconscious and all this. And when they sort of signposted that, I realized that perhaps this is about buried trauma and like bringing it to the surface. So I sort of started to realize, oh, there's maybe a psychological component or a game here that we're trying to play. Um, So I guess I wanted to go back to the beginning and talk actually about the Groundhog's Day comparison only because I get it. 
it is like Groundhog's Day, but I actually find that comparison to be like overly facile because yeah. I think the thing about Groundhog's Day, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is like he wasn't dying every night. Like he sort of goes to sleep, he goes to sleep and wakes and up, and he wakes up, and like obviously he dies same, sometimes, but it's not about death, right? And like he wakes up, and it's the same morning and the same day, and and there is just to me something about the show where like you cannot gloss that she is dying. Like it's it's and 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 they sort of ha- like they address this as almost with her very first death and then sort of leave it but like she talks about like how horrible and weird that is to yeah. to die and like i think that is really a very important part of the vibe of the show which is that it's like it's not like some light nothing like she is dying and then there's something you know there's there's the yeah. death where like ruthie shoots her because she thinks she's an intruder and right. like which is horrible and she has this realization that like all these timelines are spinning off all of her deaths where people are having to deal with the consequences of her dying. Yeah, she says yeah. at one point, Ruth has grieved me 15 times and I can't let that happen yeah, again. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. I think Groundhog Day has this very, yeah, I mean, it's like the Harold Ramis, like bouncing along like every morning. The only thing that's similar is that when they both respawn, Groundhog Day and uh, Russian Doll, a pop song plays. Right. <laughs> a cloying yeah. pop. Well, I like the Harry Nielsen yeah, better like than, than um, the Harry Nielsen Cher. Song is very good. But I think the the yeah it is overly facile as you said because it's also i think groundhog day is a very solo journey like yes he makes friends in the town yes he woos andy mcdowell but it's not um a a two-hander as you said and i think what really sort of breaks russian doll out of that comparison really quickly is the third episode can i speak to the groundhog day thing just really quickly i mean the whole reason we're here talking in a way is because of groundhog day (laughs) because i emailed the podcast producer and said we have to do a russian doll spoiler after talking about this show on my other podcast the slate culture gab fest where my co-host Stephen metcalf kept mentioning groundhog day and insisting that this was a copy of groundhog day and i really feel like i didn't push back enough on that and think about the differences and talk about them and Mm -hmm. i wanted a place to do that and i think part of that i really always hesitate to take the subject position of oh because of my gender i can understand this and you can't but there there is something more male about groundhog day right i mean it's about achievement it's about winning the girl it's about sort of um he learns to play piano and becomes a great pianist he sort of unlocks all these achievement milestones and then gets the reward of love whereas this show has a completely different goal in mind than that i think actually it's interesting the gender stuff because i think that it's gendered in other ways too which is in some regard this is like a puzzle show right and when i say a puzzle show i mean it has like a intricacy a mechanics like a, a what's happening that is sort of similar to a show like westworld or something i mean mm-hmm. it's not as convoluted as that but it's not like like you could imagine a version of the show where there are people on reddit being like what is the secret to the show and that is like a very male way of approaching a television show and obviously this show has some of that but like it's simultaneously that's just not what the show is about <laughs> um and that also feels gendered yeah i just the one thing about the groundhog's day thing that i want to go back to is that I think the other thing about this show, and it's like so sitting there in plain sight that it's almost like you just don't see it, which is that and Natasha Leone did an interview with Alan Sepinwall for Rolling Stone. Um, he's a TV critic at Rolling Stone now. And she talked about this, which is that the whole thing is a metaphor for addiction. Not even a metaphor. It's about addiction. Natasha Leone was sort of uh, had a very serious drug problem. I think she almost died. She, it was that she was in the newspapers a lot uh, about a decade ago. And she talks about how, like, it's like, and there's a sequence in in the second episode where she sort of 
realizes she's dying and you, she said there's a montage where she's just doing all these drugs yeah, but taking but everything that's handed to her and she does drugs throughout the uh, this, the you know she's a very casual relationship with drug use but the thing it's like it's larger than that the whole the metaphor is basically it's like being a drug addict because it's like you die all the time not because you actually die, but because you're like living this husk of a life where like you do all this terrible shit to your body and you go to bed and you wake up every morning and there you are. The repetition of being stuck in like your life, but you're trying to destroy your life. I mean, that that is like I mean, she's this is sort of what the armature of the show is about. And that right, self-destruction. And that is yeah. very feels very different than Groundhog's Day. Right. And I, just, <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah. like it's, it was such a smart choice, even though this is in many ways an autobiographical show. And she said so to not have her be an addict and not really have a character who is an addict. There's lots of people ex- who are exhibiting addictive behaviors yeah. galore, including Alan. But this isn't a show about a person who is addicted to a substance who has to get off of it. It really is kind of making addiction something much broader than that, that we could all see ourselves as right. falling it's into. It's a show about like, being stuck in repetitive loops that may or may not like be slightly different but like you can't escape yourself in that repetitive loop this Mm -hmm. is actually reminding me that it's has lots of weird resonances with Ling Ma's severance which is like actually also about how we all are like in our repetitive loops even when we're she's fevered yeah we're fevered it's crazy okay anyways Um... yeah I just finished that book it's so good oh I haven't read it now I want to (laughs) I also just finished it um so yeah, so I there's lots of things to talk about, but I yeah. guess I did just want to like take a little silo and just talk a little bit about Natasha Leone because sure. there's like I just read this Pamela Adlon profile in the New Yorker where someone talked about how like she makes the show better things and she's like the person who finally like she did what everyone says you're supposed to do like make the show that only you can make and Russian Doll feels that way to me like this is the show that like only Natasha Leone could make I think her and Leslie Headland primarily and Amy Poehler a little bit like obviously they're all in this show yeah but like so much of the show is just Natasha Leone's personality and her character and the way she says cockroach and cockroach and all that you know and unlike her her sort of like her sort of the way she's like a downtown punk throwback yeah and living in this sort of modern world and all of that stuff just seems so quintessential like if she's not in it and if it's another character, like even if it has the same structure and plot, like this show is maybe not that good. Yeah, no, I mean, or not I that think, memorable, or not that lovable. I think, I think the you're right. The show succeeds because I would watch Natasha Leone do anything, and and maybe more than anything else, walk around New York at night. I mean, the thing that's, you know, the show takes place a lot in uh, Tompkins Square Park at night, which is to me, it just seems like Natasha Leone's natural habitat, and she's just the mayor yeah. of that place and skulking around it. And it just feels so much like a showcase for her. I will say that, so this is just like a very a personal aside, which is that I am like around Nadia Volvikov's age and I grew up in New York and I spent a decade living in the East Village. And there was just like, it. she was like extreme. They like, we are shooting only in the East Village. Like every location is a real place that yeah. like is a place that, we have all like if you live there that you have been or that you Was, have walked is the odessa by. diner still open yes but the oh bar next to it closed you know it's yeah, like that yeah, yeah it's like all of that stuff or like you know seven uh the bar where seven she goes b to is like dealer, the horseshoe bar dog. is like still there all yeah. of those things um and there was i mean does someone want to talk a little bit about that jason zinneman tweet thread i I mean, I don't, or just I don't know enough about the Tompkins Square riots to really get into it. But there was, a, but right, go yeah, ahead. this, this uh, a writer for the New York Times had this v- long tweet thread, a sort fan of theory, basically. conspiracy theory rabbit hole, where he was saying that he thought that the show was really about the Tompkins Square riots, which 
um, were in response to a curfew that was put on the park and and, and to gentrification, gentrification more largely and the sort of you know as well as said earlier the 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 new east village is just high rises and glassy bodegas and yes some of the grit is still there but a lot of it was sort of run away and um the idea that it's sort of a lament and a celebration of this old new york and you know what that i it was a, a longer thread than i can get into here but i do know that natasha leone responded on twitter get out of my brain and it was about it and was, she sent him a gif of a pony which was very sweet <laughs> i mean it was like the idea was sort of that there is in the allen and um Nadia like oil and water mm -hmm. partnership sort of these hints of like the new and the old East Village and the ways they have to coexist but also are sort of antithetical to one another and that um, you know that the and the homeless man Horace who lives in Tompkins Park who seems to somehow be fundamental to like how she gets into this loop and sort of how she gets out of it yeah, that brings me to a question. I mean, if you are going to be very Reddit about it and try to find keys and everything, what do you think Horse's function in the narrative is? I mean, he he's the person that she sees across the street right before her very first death, right? She's crossing the street to where he is when she's hit by that first car that kills her. And the first thing she says when she sees him is, I know that guy from somewhere. Well, you find out his backstory at one point, and it's... It's not, you know, he was eventually, he was sort of like lost everything in the dot-com boom and then decided to drop out. That's what he tells her. And there's something there about like sort of a different kind of, you know, digital collapse in New York and a, a, these many phases of New York City where people can either choose to sort of gentrify or drop out. And he was part of one wave of that. And right, and the, and the last sort of beat of the show after Alan and Nadia have... Um, Converge their timelines. Okay. Sort of, right? They're like two different timelines, yeah. but they're like they've they've connected. They've they've gotten out of their loops anyway. Um, like it ends with them in this parade that's sort of led by the denizens of Tompkins Square Park. Um, that I think sort of references some of the riot stuff and yeah. visually and yeah. I mean, I I don't quite know like what horse means. <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess I think that there's some of the puzzle stuff about Russian Doll that's a little bit a sleight of hand or like a three-card Monty, which is that there's some very satisfying scenes where they, uh, Nadia sort of like has some insight into what's going on, like that there's timelines or like when she takes, there's all this rotting fruit around as the show yeah. progresses and she takes this piece of fruit and she cuts it in half and it's fresh on the inside and it's like her explanation to Alan that there's actually like, you know, there's a fourth dimension where like every this this is proof that there's like another timeline that in you which, could be dead and alive at the same time right that they're still okay and that they can get back to it and I found all of that like very sort of clever and like it like flashed some pleasure point in my brain while I was mm -hmm. watching it but he Alan meanwhile is sort of saying to her like isn't this really all about like morality and sort of about connection like how come we're the ones doing this like is this is about us like trying to get together to make our lives better and Nadia is so not interested in that kind of hooey gooey that she's like no this can't be about that like there's no way that God cares about that or there's no way there's like a God like no higher power is like paying that much attention to us mm -hmm. that we have and and I think it's sort of the show kind of like uses her surliness about those ideas to like push those ideas off to pretend they're not embracing them while totally embracing them like it is about like hooey gooey connection and like right. these two someone in the universe paying very close attention to these two people getting it right but it kind of like it's like let's say that's not what it's about because she's saying what's not what it's about and she's our point of view character even though she's wrong about this and like maybe you just won't notice and then it'll be just be like 
it's fine. And then there'll be this cool shot at the end where there's like four screens <laughs> and they're and they're like there's four timelines where like sort of they encounter each other at the moment. Because it turns out that they have met in the very first episode, and we just don't yeah. realize it at this deli. They they get back to that moment, and the timeline split, and then they have to like do this work to unloop, you know. And then they basically finally unloops. But and you're like, this is so cool and interesting, but it's not like it hasn't ever satisfactorily like gotten into the metaphysics of why it's happening. Yeah. Right, that isn't that isn't addressed and doesn't really need to be addressed. The closest that comes to getting addressed is when she goes to the house of the rabbi right who would who i guess rents the yeshiva out or something right and she gets a prayer said for her there's a there is there is that one episode where she's trying to explore you know what what does the spiritual world have to do with all of this and then she kind of gives up on that thread because it keeps on happening anyway i kind of liked one of the things i liked about the show so much is that in this video game way it's like she would run something down and it would be like important but then she'd be like okay i got that so like she has this ex-boyfriend john who's played by yul vasquez who's you know, she was having an affair with him. He ended up breaking up his marriage, yeah. uh, basically because of her, at which point she's sort of like, I think it got too much for her. And she's sort of like, they haven't seen each other in six months. He comes to her party. Um, and there's a, there's a number of episodes that sort of deal with her and him and like basically her refusing to meet his daughter and like how sort of how how sort of cruel she was to him in the sense of like, you know, not that he she had necessarily forced him or asked him to break up his marriage, but then just like totally disassociating from him after he'd done all this work and and you see you see her sort of like realize that in various timelines and then just be like okay like I don't have to revisit that in all of these timelines like yeah but I think she, she like has yeah. that connection with him and then like the next one she's like oh we're not gonna like we did that I know how that like I know how that part of this game goes so let's like back up although you know meeting his daughter is the thing that helps her break her loop I mean I think like you know there's a lot going on about moms and daughters in this show too that we could get into I mean obviously you know, Nadia's main trauma that she's trying to excavate and overcome is this um, feeling she has that she in some way, you know, existentially betrayed her mother, who we in a flashback, we find out is Chloe Sevigny, who had severe mental illness. Um, You know, we see a shot of them going from bodega to bodega with her mom picking up several watermelons. For what reason? We don't know. Probably seems like a man, a manic person, a manic. Yeah. And And manic depressive can't be trusted with a sharp knife, breaks every mirror in their house. Um, And we find out slowly over the course of the show that at some point, well, we we find out even in the first episode that her mother didn't make it to 36 or or died. I mean, that's that's why the birthday is so heavy. She's going to be older than her mother. Yeah. Yeah. Her mother never made it to to 36. And then we also find out that um, Ruthie, this woman who sort of acts as her surrogate mother, she started living with her when she was a child and not her mother. And and later she has a extreme feeling of guilt about having made that choice or child services took her away for some reason and she feels that she in some way killed her own mother Uh, as soon as she was taken from her mother her mother died soon after so she and in her memory she chose to live with ruthie although ruth tells her like that's not true you chose to live with your mother but we all knew that that was an impossible situation so we took you anyway but because she wanted to she has like all this guilt and and sort of in the moment that's like the most harrowing about this stuff about her mother she is meeting with john's daughter and basically it's the bloodiest scene in the whole show too extracts nadia extracts starts to choke and extracts a piece of glass from her a piece of mirror right right, a piece of glass from her mouth out and it's it's this mirror that her mother in sort of one of her fits of in you know one of her really 
serious depressive episodes had broken all of the mirrors in the house her daughters and and like this is the piece of glass that's like lodged inside of Nadia yeah and I, I, w- I couldn't interpret I interpreted that like I watched it a few times and tried to figure out what that meant like one time I was like yeah this is the glass her mother broke it is lodged into her maybe that's how her mother killed herself was yeah. by eating glass like there's like a lot or of ways you, can, in- you yeah. can interpret it but you know I think this moment she breaks her own loop is when she meets with this little girl who's John's daughter who was about the age she was when all of this went down and you know it it means something i think in that second to last episode she starts seeing her own childhood self appear on various corners and that causes her to die actually have several reactions right. some I mean, allergic reactions i mean there is there, there is this moment sort of about halfway a little more than halfway through the show where so at the beginning the loops i mean obviously there's something not not uh realistic because actually there's these loops right she keeps coming back in the same moment but sort of about halfway through things start to get weirder still right which is that people start to disappear from these memories the fruit starts to rot she starts to die every time she starts to see a past version of herself and die immediately there's there's sort of bodies they begin to have asthma attacks and heart yeah, attacks the deaths start to change and that was also i thought just a thrilling choice in the yeah. narrative because both alan and nadia start dying of internal reasons right? right she sees him and we didn't see that death of his but he says oh i died of liver failure and she says i died of an asthma attack and it's just it's such a perfect metaphor for the fact that they have to go deeper and deeper inside themselves right i mean it's not coming from the outside anymore it's coming from the inside yeah there's like three sort of levels of death the first ones are all accidents right it's like they get hit by a car they fall down an air you know an air shaft or whatever and then there's a series of like murders like ruth kills her with a gun these the, you know, these young women mace allen to death somehow right <laughs> and then an attack. yeah and then their bodies start failing so it's sort of this triple and i mean right. that, and this is one of, like i really don't care about the metaphysics of the world particularly yeah but there is like thing it does start to be like something is like really like you need to figure this out the pressure is like being ramped up you're about to be like in an abandoned new york city and you're the only two yeah. people in it. yeah and the disappearance of things and fish from fish tanks and all of that has a lot to do with that and i love the beginning of that episode or at least the beginning of the new life loop where she wakes up in the bathroom looking at a mirror by the way they both wake up looking at a mirror every time after their their new life starts and uh, and the the door for it, the door is gone the door that's been so important the door of which the her her friend who made it right Lizzie that character who who crafted the door um, asks is it vaginal enough <laughs> right so it's this thing she's being born through every day but suddenly the door is missing and everything looks different in the party and I think the only person at that point is Maxine it's down to just Maxine the woman her friend throwing the party for her and to me that was just that just gave this beautiful sense of. Only the things that matter are here now. You know, I'm down to the bare bones mm-hmm. of what matters. And remember, she asks Maxine in that moment, will you come with me? Because she knows that she's going on one of her hardest journeys. It turns out to be the one where she confronts her childhood self and coughs up a piece of glass and dies. And Maxine says, I can't. And that's a moment to me where it seemed that, again, you know, not to reach out to the larger metaphysics of who planned this <laughs> or who put who in what role, but it's almost like Maxine knows. And most of the time, Maxine doesn't know, right? She always says the same thing when she sees her for the first time. Sweet birthday, baby. Um, <laughs> Sweet birthday, baby. <laughs> but this time, she asks Maxine to go with her, and Maxine can't. She realizes somehow, Maxine realizes yeah. that it's a journey she has to make on her own. Do you, I, I sort of, uh, I guess I gave my, like, interpretation of this earlier, but I am curious, like, what is it? The show is not like particularly hammer over the head or even particularly clear about like what it is that Nadia like learns. Like, mm-hmm. do, do you know, what I, like, what is it? So, I think I would like to talk a little more about Alan, but Alan, like, it's very clear what he learns, right? right. He is like extremely uptight, stressed out, rigid, trapped guy. And she, 
is not and she busts him out of that like she fights for him she stands up for him she makes him do all these things he doesn't want to do and like I think sort of that he has like the thesis of the show which he says to her like it is really hard for people to change and like you you helped me change and like that is a really hard thing to do I mean I think that's really like what the show is actually about but I'm like less clear about like what her thing is and I would like to hear what you guys think I mean, that, that was. But that's to me is such a strength of the show is that she's not given a flaw or a problem for example addiction you know that could be a thing that you would solve by going into rehab it, it, there's there's nothing that corresponds that directly to healing you know it's much more holistic than that and I think that was why I found this show so not only really moving but I feel like I kind of changed because of it, at least for a couple days after watching it. I mean, I think the thing that she learns, which has to do with addiction and addictive behaviors, is to participate in life, to be part of the world in a way that she's not at the beginning. And you're right that that's hard to see because she has friends. She has a good job, right? She seems to have a good life and be a person who is capable of some level of enjoyment of that life. But she keeps people at arm's length all the time, right? She won't She won't meet the daughter of her ex. She won't take the extra step where she would have to confront any sort of relationship that she might lose, right? Because of, we assume, her past trauma with her mother. But maybe that's why the moment when she goes and reaches out to, to Horace in the park seemed like a moment to me that she starts to figure something out. Like, I could do this better. I could do it again, and I could do it just slightly better. But, you know, it's, I... I... I I basically I mean I agree I think that's what it I think that's what it is mm-hmm. that, but at the same time like she has this intimate relationship with Ruth right and like even with Horace you're like oh you seem totally like the kind of woman who like some night in the park. would just like be pals like there is this way that she has that kind of like I mean this this is sort of what's complicated about her but like she has that capacity for like momentary intimacy which is like a very druggy thing or can be where it's like you're oh, like yeah. where you're like oh we're really close for tonight. Like no, she, she, you, mm-hmm. you yeah, got that think, feeling that she's like she's got a lot of like she's had a lot of like connections with people even if she has even if that connection then doesn't like ask anything of her it's very you know serendipitous or fleeting well, like it's not like she's having she's having like she sees people and they see her like her her kindred you know punky spirits and then they like go their own way you I know mean, what I took away from it was sort of along the lines of what Dana said but I think you know she begins to show by sort of surveying the party and saying, let's make some choices, yeah. right? Which I love that line. And at the very end of the show, when she's in the timeline where Alan, I mean, I, I think what's really interesting is that it ends in these two timelines where they've gone back to the night they met, but they're in different times. And each of them has kind of like the God mode knowledge of having played the whole video game and the other person doesn't remember them. So it's like one person is playing the controller and the other person is playing the player and they're trying to get them where they need to go. But in the timeline where she doesn't know anything and doesn't remember Alan and he's trying to steer her away from sleeping with Mike and making this bad choice that she's going to regret, you know, a series of bad choices that end up in her leaving her own birthday party, leaving with this jerk, possibly sleeping with him without a condom, all these kind of choices that are just really self-destructive and are going to result in self-loathing. And at the very end, she just makes a choice not to do that. Well, see, it's interesting. I don't think, I'm not sure like the show's point of view is like those were all going to result in self-loathing. I mean, that's the way way that she's such a different character than Alan because like Alan killed himself. Like we know Alan is miserable and like, and suicidal and like she's going to, she, so when she, when she, and she finds him, she spends the night with him. She tells him a story. She makes sure that he does not, like she is a friend to him when he needs a friend, even though he doesn't know who she is, you know? Um, But in her timeline, it's like, 
her her first death is like she gets hit by this car, but like, and she slept with it. Like, are those choices are sort of par for the course for her? And um, or maybe like, I mean, maybe they're bad, but they're not like you know, there's that, no moralizing in, the, in, in, that, in Nadia's like a, world. Yeah. Nadia's world, right? There's no moralizing in no. Nadia's world. So it's like it's like he keeps her from like this fluke thing of getting hit by a car, and and that and then like. And it takes a lot of work to keep her from getting the blue thing from getting hit by a car, but he does it, and then like she sort of like warms to him. But it is, it is like there, it is a he's like a very black and white character, and yeah. she's just very gray. And it's sort of interesting how they're like next to each other because you sort of want, I sort of like expect the show in a way to like have them be the same, like to ha- have a sort of view of them that is the same. But I think talking about this is very clear. Like it doesn't. Like they are different people, well, and the Edra treats them differently. Alan, if anything, is like much more of a cipher for her mother, who's a person who's like extremely mentally fragile and possibly suicidal, and she is sort of like able to play right. foil to that kind of character I mean, and, and if you, well. And if you think that her mother did kill herself, which yeah. I think it's strongly implied, like the idea that she sa- kept someone from suicide is like ha- has some more. Yeah, right. I mean, maybe if 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 this has all been a metaphor or you know parable about addiction, I mean, maybe Nadia's story is as simple as the way you get out of addictive loops and behaviors is that you just keep living. Yeah, and you you don't make that fateful choice one night that leads you to get hit by the car. I mean, I think that's like profound and true. Yeah. I think that's what I think that's like what it is. Just yeah, like you. it is a show about how to keep living. And that's why I think it is, again, like so powerful that there's not this big fixable problem that she has. Look at the way she enters the party. The very first time you see her enter it with the Nilsson song bopping in the background and the last time you see her yeah. enter it. And after you watch, you watch went through once. The first episode is really fascinating to see because even though you already loved her in the first episode, she is so much happier and more joyful and living the moment more fully the last time she walks she through that party. Right, she's Every so single happy person gets a huge hug. <laughs> yeah. She's so grateful for everything. And remember there's a scene earlier where she makes that really awkward speech at the party asking, can everybody tell me the worst thing about me at her own birthday party? And her friend says, you're just like my uncle who didn't know it's how to my say uncle thank Tom you. who did right. not know how to say thank you. <laughs> and by the end, that's something that she's yeah. learned. She has, she, it's, it's, this sounds so touchy-feely. I'm sure her character goes on being like the same Columbo like lovable crank but she has so much more joy and gratitude I I actually that's I think that will maybe get us to the end Mm -hmm. of this conversation which is like how so I had I like googled sort of maybe after I finished watching like will there be more seasons of the show and Mm -hmm. there was some article which may or may not be real that was like they're talking about it as three seasons and it's very popular I'm, I'm sure we picked up and Listen, I I'm he- I will watch a second season of Russian Doll, obviously, like just yeah. to hang out with. But I was just like, this show seemed to me like, what a good ending! Like, what a perfect thing! Like, what a concise, yeah, well done jewel like, box of a show. I did not and ne- compact for God's sake, right, not uh, overstuffed, yeah. not overstuffed. Like, really, just like done to completion, done to fullness, like a finished work. I'm like, yeah. and the idea that there will be a second season, even though, as I said, I will watch it. Like, it hurts me. Like, I just, I feel like this is, like, this perfect thing, and I wish we could just have perfect things, like, be perfect. I a know, little bit like I know. the Who Drew the Ditch of... show, right? There <laughs> yeah, should only, yeah. what is it called again? You American Vandal. American Vandal. There should have only I been know. one season. This is one of your things, is that there shouldn't be two seasons of certain shows. I agree with it. I mean, I think if, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, well, if I trust anyone to do it, it might be Natasha Leone and Leslie Headland, who the latter famously wrote seven off-Broadway plays all dedicated to the seven deadly sins and each one was more brilliant than the last and you're like who could write seven good plays and it was Leslie Headland. so you're like oh maybe she can pull it off but it's just like the idea that we would be going back into time loops like I just do you yeah. know what I mean like there's there feels like there's some diminishing returns in like 
I that mean, you don't structure. Know. I mean, I, this show is so surprising. They may come back and play a completely different game. I know. Maybe that's good. I, yeah, I do really. I know I said this at the beginning, but also in that interview with Alan Seppenwall, um, she referenced uh, this memoir uh, that came out a couple years ago called Life in Code by Ellen Ullman, who was like uh, a woman in Silicon Valley, I think in the 80s and 90s when there were not a lot of women doing and like what that experience was like. And I can to me, this is like a little bit the little like a little of a, a jangly note on this show, which is like I can 100 percent see why Natasha Leone and Leslie Headland were like, that's so interesting. That's so awesome. That fits in with like so many things we're trying to do. We're trying to do this sort of like video game premise like she's dying like the video game. But like it is really hard for me to like imagine Nadia as a person even spending a huge amount of time alone like coding. And then actually what the video game looks like that she's made and that Alan cannot like complete and that is like impossible to finish it doesn't like look like a video game. <laughs> it, well, it actually looks like an, my 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 husband who plays a lot of video games said it looks like an indie platformer, whatever that means, <laughs> which wouldn't actually come out of the rock and roll games, which is supposed to be rock star games yeah. that she once worked for. Um, it's like very. It's it, very. He said neat. It, lo- it looks like this. He was like, "Oh, it looks like Braid," but he's like, "That would have been a game, <laughs> not that Alan would be playing." So it was like a funny. He was like, "That doesn't work," but but I do think there is something. I mean. I, he, I, it was actually funny because my husband is a coder, right? He's a computer programmer. And so we talked about whether or not this was an accurate job for her to have. And he actually said, you know, given that it's a show about addictive behaviors, there's a lot of that in coding. And right. a lot of people that stay up all night do a lot of coke. I mean, not, not him, but, you know, in the community that, like, it's part, part uh, being addicted to coding is sort of similar metaphorically i'm all with the coding but just just, her particular i just found it to be like a slightly like i mean a totally overlookable like not quite like a like a really good idea that doesn't like feel that real right like i was trying to think of what other job (laughs) nadia would have that would feel more accurate to me and i'm like i mean like even if she was like a band manager like on the one hand like she wouldn't do that on the other hand you're like yeah, you would do that. Like it's just like some job right. where you're like some, up like, late at night. Yeah, job some nightlife where you're out. Yeah, just whatever. Yeah. Um. Okay. I just wanted to hear what you two thought about the fact that it. I think it's pretty successful as a New York show. A hundred percent. You know, it's like and, a deeply New York show. Right. But in that way where not only did everything feel accurate in terms of location scouting and the kinds of apartments people would really have, even I just assume Maxine has a trust fund. <laughs> yeah, of course. She's like kind of related to her high maintenance character. Like yeah, she's a, a little scammer. Bit. There's this whole world in which that's <laughs> happening. I have a fire escape. Um, but I think, you know, more than that, I feel like it was a really good New York show in that I, ha- I think it had a lot to say about the city. And what it's become and gentrification and the way the East Village is now and the kind of people that live there and the kind of bonds that people make or don't make. And I think, you know, ending on that giant parade through Tompkins Square Park kind of made me think, oh, maybe the moral of this is just that you have to live a communal life in New York City. I will just say I'm not actually sure that last scene is there is no tunnel in Tompkins Square Park. No, and I'm not sure that (laughs) scene actually takes place. Right, I think there, right. it might be happening in a dream world or, yeah. you know, it feels... I mean, oh, that gets to the thing I want to talk about in okay, our yeah. last few minutes, which is that last, just literally technically the last scene, the way that we get, okay, in the last episode, as we've established, there's two. There's a split timeline for the first time, right? When they wake up in the morning, there's this great overhead shot where you see them each looking in their mirror at the same time. And so throughout the day, you follow them. And then, as Willa pointed out, at the end of the evening, you have sort of present day Nadia and, you know, first night Nadia, who's messed up and who's going home with a sleazy professor. Um, not messed up. She's slightly tipsy. And uh, and 
first night Alan, who's really messed up, right? And so we've got this convergence where sort of modern day Nadia meets old Alan and modern day Alan meets old Nadia and they have to convince that person not to make the bad choices they were about to make. And then, of course, there's the moment where the split screens come together. I found that so sort of cinematically thrilling as they um, as they join the parade and they've kind of integrated into themselves, we assume, and are marching forward with the parade. What exactly the parade is, whether it's magic realism in their world or whether it means that they're dead and they're off to heaven, I don't, I don't know exactly what we're supposed to imagine happening to them next but you would presume that they're out of their loops and they are not they're going to be able to continue living whatever life they've established for themselves and and in whatever life they're living for themselves like the the other person is an important part even if they don't like they, even if they didn't live their time together I yeah. thought Alan might vanish when I, when so, I saw yeah. them coming together I had this feeling that maybe Alan was going to vanish from her life at that moment or from the narrative you know, so that she could go on to the next season without him in a way or something. And I, mean, I was I so happy to see him in the final frame. He's gone and kind of into the background. Yeah, he's yeah. not in the final frame, but he is in the parade. But yeah. I, th- I think the parade is sort of just like a embodiment of life. It's just yeah. like such a, an alive experience that you're just sort of like, oh, she's merged onto whatever highway life is. Yeah, but it is so, uh, it's like a declaration that the show is about feelings and not about like something that like has to make exact sense if you're going to like take it apart, even though it's really fun to take it apart. You know, it's like, oh, this, this is like a happening. It's a, a it's, there's thing, where are we? But like, we're somewhere that's like feels ebullient or somewhere that feels energetic, somewhere that feels better. And there's also a fantastic song at the end, right? You don't hear the Nilsson loop song. You hear this song that Natasha Leone has said in interviews that she really, really wanted this song in it. She picked most of the soundtrack, which is a great soundtrack. And it's this song by Love, the 60s psychedelic band Love, which um, which expresses that kind of um, community, you know, expresses that kind of celebration. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that we have, like, sufficiently spoiled Russian Doll, although I feel like we could keep talking about it. Over and over and over again. <laughs> it's really fun, though. I we'll feel... see you all tomorrow. Yeah, I feel really satisfied. Though. Exactly. We'll just, like, be back here at our death day. <laughs> like Don't our... die. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you. you. So fun. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil or if you have any any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt. Thanks very much. See you next time.